evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Slanted and Decanted podcast. I am one of your hosts, Parker Story, and I'm joined by my good friend, Cara Patricia. We are recording from the Drink for Yourself studio in the beautiful Soma West neighborhood in San Francisco, California. It is Sunday. It sure uh, is Sunday. It's always Sunday. I love Sundays. I love our Sunday records. It's nice. It's a great way to wrap my shift. And honest, sometimes it can be preoccupying. I'm like trying to get in the pod zone, which is difficult when you're, you know, cellaring, dealing with guests, that type of stuff. But uh, I don't know. We went down pretty well tonight. We're, you know, you don't gotta. We're getting it tight. Get ready if you stay ready. That's right. All right, you gotta always be in the pod zone. I was extremely ready today. I couldn't stop. Um, nonstop computer work, nonstop podcasting mindset. Uh, you know, uh, I think the fruits will be a uh, will be apparent. Okay. Uh, question. Yes. You know how like we do this podcast every Sunday. Yes. You know we've been doing that. Have you heard about those people that like live stream like their daily life? Like they're constantly live streaming themselves. I've, well, I, yeah, I've seen a lot of people do that actually. And um, like they make like a grand a day sometimes, but they're like constantly live streaming. Like they're walking around dressed like as a like a weeb like downtown like with yeah. A they call them stick. like NPCs. Like uh, I've seen one kid who's like constantly in character as Spider Man. Um, like all day long. Yeah, that's like their job. I've seen a lot of parents like screaming at their teenagers about it, like trying really? to get them to break character. Really? Yeah, it's really on what? funny. Like on t- on YouTube or something? Yeah, well, on you know X, <laughs> like other video sources. You're not allowed to be on that anymore. I'm always on X. Listen, we are counting down until the day is. You know, if we get if we get a thousand subscribers, Parker mm-hmm. will quit X. I can't, and I know that it's because our our mutual and uh, you know deep shared hatred for Elon Musk. But we have different tacts, you know, we're different people. Where if you've fully divested and, and blocked him from your memory, I am keeping close tabs on him. And I'm inside I'm in the mix. I wanna know what he's doing at all times. It's never good or funny, but oh, you know. God, it's he's still like posting memes that are bad, like two thousand ten core memes. And like anti Semitism. Yeah, but he always does the like. Yeah, but. Well, like, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm getting osmotically affected by no, it. If that's your concern. Um, no, no. But his uh, his particular brand of like uh, bigotry on there is funny because he never says anything that's outwardly like bad. He'll no, find he just, a post that someone has said something it, crazy or and says something like, "Oh, you speak the truth." Oh wow, that's like, interesting or mm, concerning. It can be like someone posting the protocols of the elders of Zion, and he'll be like. Hmm, this is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's very crazy. God, um, Yeah, he's a huge piece of shit. But, um, yeah, I have seen uh, quite a few uh, NPC-style TikTok kids and live stream kids. They live on their lives. They make a lot of money. There was that one woman, I think a couple of months ago, who went viral. She ended up in a couple of magazines because she was making, you know, several million dollars a year yeah. pretending to eat sushi on the internet. <laughs> Like, cool. I need to figure out this niche. Like, I somebody told me that if we live streamed Decant, that they would pay money to watch it all day. Like, just what's going on here. Whoa. Who and told I was you like, that? one of our creepiest friends. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds One of sus. our creeps cool. um, that we love. 
uh, but they no longer live in San Francisco. So they were like, oh. they felt a little like left out. And they were like, if that's you live stream, I would follow it. And they I'm like, that's a huge security risk for a small business to just constantly be live streaming your business. Like yeah. letting people see the ins and outs of your locking mechanisms, your security systems, et cetera, et cetera, when you're terrible there, when you're not idea. there. Um, but I wish I had the... Like, I don't, I, I feel like I have, um, I feel like I grew up with this thing that's called like humility or shame or mm. like intense insecurity um, where I'm not harnessing that to, to I, I can't find, a, I don't understand how people can harness that and like push it outwards. Push it all out, yeah. Right? I can't live, either. If, if I like post too many stories, if I get stoned and I post one too many stories, repost one too many stories in a row, like last night, mm-hmm. I like go through them and I like delete them embarrassingly. I was channeling you um, last night because you do get to posting in the late hours. And um, some I have the same mechanism where I'm like, oh, that's cringe. Why am I revealing this part of myself? But it's like, well, everyone's doing it. I might as well do it, too. Um, but I told you when we started the podcast, you know, I'm not camera shy at all yeah. unless I'm holding the camera myself. It feels mm-hmm. very strange. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the like vertically aligned front facing camera oeuvre is like not for me. It's yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's you know difficult what? to. It's like a fourth wall that you own yourself. You know what? You're behind it less, and on the other side. The thing that made me less nervous about it was not only like having my own business and trying to like mm-hmm. advertise some shit every once in a while, but when I broke up with my ex partner, all of the sudden I was like. I noticed that like, you can even see it on my Instagram. It's like, we broke up in like 2019. All of a sudden I started taking selfies again. Uh, yeah, yeah. And like, I started like also like online dating for a little while too. And it was like, all of a sudden you're living kind of outwardly again, yeah. more personally. But that being said, um, I do find it very cringe as an adult. And it's hard. But I get a lot of positive feedback from people. People say to me, People will come in here and be like, you're so funny on your stories or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, first of all, like and subscribe. Like, tell the algorithm you like it. Don't tell me personally. Yeah. Like, I don't care about you telling me personally. Like, make the algorithm. No. Yeah, I don't have time for this conversation. <laughs> Leave a comment. <laughs> Leave a comment. No, like, I, um, I came into the shop the other day and I Save. said, hey, we're getting a lot of positive feedback on social media. It's so strange. I'm used to people threatening me or trolling me <laughs> because of... You know what I get up to on the internet, which is just trolling people and hanging out. But um, it is nice when you read like an earnest comment, and someone's like, "Hey, great job!" I'm like, "Oh wow, really?" <laughs> yeah, I don't believe any of it. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely going to read the comments, and I'm going to um, hunt down the people that say anything negative, find them, and then call their bosses and say, "Is this the type of people you hire?" We do have a guest tonight. Her name is Simi. Simi is a co-owner and sommelier at Decant San Francisco here on Folsom Street. Bringing Simi in to have a little bit of a dialogue about uh, some interesting stuff we've read in the press regarding sommelier work and sommelier culture. Here at Decant San Francisco, we like to think keep things pretty casual and chill when it comes to wine service and our general ambiance. Um, but that doesn't mean that a lot of hard work doesn't go into what we perform and do for ourselves and for the community every single day. Fine wine uh, is a lot is about a lot of fine details, 
oftentimes. And that's really important to, I know myself, and I think Kara as well. But I did want to uh, talk with you, Kara, about an article that's kind of making the rounds in the community and the Instagram wine space and um, its appendages. It's from Punch. And you sent it to me, I think. Uh, I uh, I didn't dig it up, but when uh, you saw, when you sent it my way, it reminded me that I'd read something from the same author a few years ago. And so I'm interested to see what you think uh, about this particular piece. Well, why don't we... Um... Why don't we do this with Cindy? Yeah, I think we should invite our guest into the bar and uh, figure out what's going on in the greater world of being or not being a sommelier. Welcome back to Slanted and Decanted, the only podcast that Kara and Parker produce in West Soma at the moment. <laughs> the only one. <laughs> Just one so far. Um, again, I'm Kara Patricia. With me, as always, is Parker Story. And today we have a little guest. A little guest. Just a little guest. We've got my business partner, my friend to the end. we got Simi Graywall here. Simi, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Say hello me. to everyone. Um, you would think I would know more about this podcast by now, but no. This <laughs> is my first time being exposed to whatever goes on inside my business. So Sunday nights. Thank you for having me. We try to make it so that you don't know that we're here yeah. on Tuesday mornings. Mm. We try to. Most of the time. How's that going? You know, like eight out of ten, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's, that's solid. Yeah. yeah. Pretty good. B student well, for life over here. We're drinking a wine from the decant shelves. We're always drinking wines from the decant shelves for now. Maybe one day people will send us some wine. Um, Parker picked this wine. This is a Petnat. Sorry, guys. We're going there. Petnats. I said Petnat was dead, but Petnat's not dead. Um, from This is the original Petnat. Method Ancestral. We have to remember that Petnat is not a new thing. It is a method that is ancestral. Yeah, it's the it's the way the game used to be played back in the day. Yeah, it is the way that it's good. Wine. It's the first way sparkling wine was wine was made. Uh, I'll give you a quick rundown. Uh, champagne, for example, prosecco, franciacorta, um, lambrusco, all these different things. All these like fancy, uh, famous sparkling wines are made with two fermentations. First, you make a still wine for the most part. Then you uh, move it over to a tank or another vessel or a bottle and you add a little bit of yeast, a little bit of sugar back in, cork it up, let it hang out. Yeast uh, eats any leftover sugar and bubbles happen. That's like a part of it. If you need more detail, I'll put a link in the bio. Um, but that's basically it. The ancestral method or the Petiant Natural wines, um, they typically have one fermentation. So you start by picking all your grapes, crush them, you start fermenting them, but typically you sort of bottle them before fermentation is complete, complete. That's right. Modern fermentations for uh, Petnat can be a little bit different. Sometimes they are transferring it into a, a bottle a little bit later. Sometimes they're disgorging it, et cetera, et cetera. But the old school way is you're not disgorging it. Um, you're going to have a little haze 
And sometimes you can have bottle variation on residual sugar as well. Um, that is just the natural way we can talk about it more. This is one of those wines. I'm partial to this method and this style. I think the variance is intriguing to me as well as um, just the storied nature of the of the process. Your thoughts on the wine, uh, Sammy the song. I I actually really enjoy this wine. Um, you know, a lot of people know I'm not a supernaturalist mm -hmm. all the time. Cara has a little bit more of that persuasion than I do when it comes to some of the wines on our shelves. But, you know, we taste things blind. And this was one of those rare wines that when I was told it was a pet hat, I was like, oh, okay. Okay, I'll see you. Uh, but I love this wine. It's 100% Cabernet Franc, mm -hmm. um, but made in a Blanc de Noir style. And it's just totally delicious and fresh and a lot of consistency from bottle to bottle. So I, I really enjoy this one. I think it's yeah. a great Sunday night quaffable, delicious little thing in a bottle. And it's all Cabernet Franc, 100% coming from the Loire Valley. It has a little juiciness to it. It is like very dry. Yeah. Super duper. It's 2016. Oh, yeah. It has a nice the end of history, that. depending on who you ask. The wine's really good, and um, I'm glad to have your high clarity, concise thoughts on it, like only a practiced psalm can deliver. Well, you know what's nice about this pet nat um, is that it still is very alive. Like, you can tell mm -hmm. that it is kind of changing, um, and that's not just because of its unfiltered, you know, kind of yeasty quality, but it has a lot of fruit that's constantly kind of evolving. When I first, when we first opened it, it was like so like tight and fresh, and now it's like tastes kind of like a like a pink apple, and it's kind of moving into it's, other parts. It's actually really reminiscent of the weather today. I mean, today was one of those like perfect crisp fall days in San Francisco, and I think this one is kind of in that like very like pink lady apple and kind of like just light, light toasted spices. It's really expressive. It's got all that kind of tart cranberry. Uh, I'm enjoying this one a lot today. Good, good pick. Good pick, yeah. folks. Good work. Super I clean. I wanted to go with the war theme. I also, I'm really enjoying how the the acti like the activity of the, the petillon has kind of wicked off a little bit, but it's, the mouthfeel is still very like fuzzy. Yeah. And like that's fuzzy. very, very active. Fuzzy. Like, um, really cool. Um, yeah, I like the, the the rainy day take, too. It makes a lot of sense. So while we taste this and we start talking a little bit about, you know, your 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 wine history, we've kind of touched on a little bit of Parker's My Own. We'll continue revealing ourselves to our listeners and who we are. Like a bio can only say so much, um, and us trauma dumping can only say the rest. Right. But <laughs> sit me, now it's your turn. Um I don't want to ask you the shitty question of how did you get into wine? Because I'm sure you have a spiel already for that. Mm -hmm. I know I do. Um, but when did you realize, at what point in your career did you realize that wine was going to be the pathway you took as opposed to anything else in sort of food and beverage hospitality or any other side? My experience with wine really started when... I was in school with you, Cara, at the Culinary Institute of America um, because I ended up there knowing that I wanted to work in the restaurant industry, um, but not really knowing I at all had a passion for wine specifically. And it was my formal training and study in the world of wine that set me off on this path that when I graduated from there, I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. 
yeah, I love food. I love eating, but I want to be serving wine. I want to be drinking wine. I want to be learning about wine because of its tie to history and, you know, like cultures around the world and, you know, all this amazing stuff that it exposes you to. Um, I think that world, that world of wine really opened my life up to many, many things that I never ever would have learned if I had not ended up in this field. Um, but it was actually the formal training that I did sort of as a move to say, okay, this is gonna expand my career in hospitality that really led me down the, oh wait, it's not just about hospitality. I wanted to be about wine. Oh, so when you went, we met at the Culinary Institute of America um, in Greystone in Napa Valley. So when you went there, because you were you were like what, 22? I was 22 when I started the yeah. program. And I was like 27, I was going back to school. And so for you being 22, you didn't go in there being like, oh, I want wine to be my career. That's very interesting. I knew next to nothing about wine when we started that program. And wow. I don't think you remember it, but I remember, you might not remember this, but I remember that there was a day when we, some one of the syllabus programs for the day had something to do with tokai. Mm. And I had never seen that word in my life. And I had done like the pre-reading the night before and I came in and I said something about tokaj. Oh. And you said, oh, actually it's pronounced tokai. And I was like, wow, there's no way I ever would have known that unless somebody told me that because till that point in time, I'd only ever read the word. I'd right. never heard it out loud. Um, and so like that is the extent of how much I did not know about wine going into it, but I absorbed it like a sponge because I still had a baby brain. Now I have a question. When I told you it was called Tokai, not Tokaj, did I make fun of your pronunciation about it? The way that you do about everything I pronounce. What do you think, Cora? <laughs> I mean, you still said it with a pretty heavy Chicago accent. Uh, it's called so Tokai. That's exactly what Yeah. And imagine 12 years ago, your accent was far worse than it is now. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I don't think you made fun of me, but you definitely said it with sort of an elderly swagger. What was I, the implication? I, yes. I went there with the feeling that I was going to be the least knowledgeable person huh. there and I was going to be way behind the curve on everything. And um, that turned out not really to, not to be the case, which I didn't really understand for a while until, um, the, you know, the proctor, the, the teachers of it asked me to like tutor some people on wine. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'm actually kind of good at this. It took me to like the encouragement of a of someone to be like, oh, I could. You think I'm actually really yeah, good getting at this. that green light is like what really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you yeah. know. And then I went into the culinary section and I just crashed and burned. Yeah, yeah. That was fun to watch. Uh, you do get you get a little crazy with it in the cheese kitchen. Um. Uh, yeah, I'm more. <laughs> yeah, I know. Parker's told but, me I was I'm the worst sous chef. I get it. Like I know. I said worst line cook in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just saying a lot. Thank you. <laughs> I believe that. Uh, I no, believe and that's that. valid. I mean, you have so many other talents. Our this is a meal of cheese. Like she's breaking down like a, an entire cow. <laughs> <laughs> Eats every part. It's like, like a cleaver. Right. Mm -hmm. I uh. It's interesting to hear that there are, you know, contours and like unknown elements about your time even together at school. And I think that evidences 
something that uh, I really wanted to highlight throughout this discussion because wine work is very involved. Mm -hmm. It takes up a lot of brain real estate. It's something that I spent years doing from a young age. Similarly, I think I was 22, 23 when I got my first wine job. And I always approached it as like, this is my job. I don't know. Like I should, I should learn all this stuff because I'm working now. And, you know, it was a year or two later before I kind of opened the door and realized how deep and nuanced the community was. And I was like, oh, this is a whole big deal to a lot of people, uh, which is not discouraging. But, you know, having a non-traditional and mainly restaurant focused path through wine and like a tertiary market uh, without a lot of formal training. You know, I, I encounter so many sommeliers in my life, just even in Kansas City, right? Where at, when I was coming up, there were 20 of them, 25 of them. You know That's I mean? like, that to me is, a, is like a lot. Because yeah. one of the reasons yeah. I came here from Chicago is I felt like there are no jobs for sommeliers. Really? And how am I ever going to? get the education that I want to have this be my career in a place where there's not a lot of mentors and not a lot of jobs. Well, we had two master psalms and or one master psalm, Doug Frost, and um, an itinerant, I think Aaron Fry was vying for MS. I, he might have nailed it already. I can't remember. You know, these were like the big dogs, the old guys. Yeah. You know, they ran around town. And I had a lot of respect for these dudes because most of them worked in supply to some degree. Of course, You know what yeah. I mean? And so I worked at a really like a pretty big restaurant for that area. And so all of those guys were in and out of the door. And I was like, oh, those are the sommeliers. Um, yeah. I was being mentored by a guy who didn't really give a, a fuck about any of that stuff. And so I was like, I don't know. I'm just listening to you. But in my time traveling the country, living in different markets, specifically after arriving in San Francisco, and weathering the storm as a young person through the apparently never ending natural wine thing. Um, I've always anchored myself to academic, hardworking, classical sommeliers because they know what they're talking about. Um, and even if they're very aware of the fashions of the day and what have you, um, the vertebrae of what we do is really about a deep understanding of uh, where it comes from and why. Yeah what is quality and what isn't. And um, that's why it worked out so well, I think, tonight to have Simi on the podcast because I did want to talk to two sommeliers about uh, some literature I read in the in the press pretty recently. I would call it um, A couple of articles, actually. And I want to preface this segment to make sure that everybody knows that I'm not opening this dialogue to denigrate someone or um, tell them that their writing is bad or, or get catty on the internet. Um, I want to uh, have a conversation about sommelier work, sommelier culture, and the itinerant things that surround it. And, um, you know, working with wine, the good parts and the bad parts, one of those bad parts maybe being online hand-wringing about, <laughs> you know, what it all means. So without too much ado, I want to introduce you guys to an article I read in Punch that's getting... Um, quite a lot of attention um, in the online wine space, I'd say, amongst the sommelier community. Uh, this is onpunchdrink.com, and it's uh, by one Miguel de Leon, and uh, it's titled, So Long to the Quote Somme, unquote. Simran, were you able to read this article? Or, uh, we talk, yeah. 
I read it a few times, yeah. Okay. Um, for posterity and also for the listener's enjoyment and knowledge, I want to read a couple of words from it. And I'll say before we get started, it didn't give me like a ton of pause. In fact, I felt like I was reading an amalgam of several articles that I've read before. But I was intrigued by the outsized reaction in the community that I saw online. And um, then I decided to join the dog pile. So that's why we're recording this podcast. Um, not why we're recording this podcast. It just happens to be our topic for this weekend. Fair Simi enough. Was on, Simi was on the books for today, long before this thing was. Yeah, as I mentioned, I think I it worked out quite well. Cheese. Oh, no, the article opens, Are You a Psalm? Most people know me as the person serving them wine at the restaurant, so ostensibly yes, but to be honest, I don't fucking think so. About 10 years ago, the word sommelier was in the middle of both a PR glow-up and an identity crisis. Before 2012, the sommelier was fairly straightforward to define. He, and it was generally a cis white hetero man, oversaw the shoulds of wine service. Serviette in hand, giving the wine list to the man at the table, pouring for the ladies first. He probably wore a suit or a fancy apron and was deemed a sommelier by way of Eurocentric pay-to-play certification programs. He probably earned his keep in a fine dining room that lauded the correctness of pairings and had access to a deep cellar of wines that contributed to his education. Oh, the horror. Then <laughs> things got complicated. Uh, wine culture was slowly inching its way into mass media, most notably with 2004's Sideways, which illustrated that there wasn't much of a divide between the connoisseurs and those who just wanted to get drunk, and later, in 2012, with Psalm, which documented the industry's bookish pursuit of perfection. The latter helped introduce the word Psalm to the public and cement a new image of the Psalm, as some who partied like an honor student who kept up with the grades but knew how to throw down a loose tie and an open bottle on their person any old Thursday night. At the same time, the then-exploding natural wine movement which wanted to clearly cleave from that fine dining world, developed its own attitude toward the word. Patrick Capiello, whose career spans stints at Tribeca Grill, Veritas, and Gilt, would become the poster child for this shift when he opened Pearl and Ash. He eschewed the suit for a black flag t-shirt and jeans and often wielded a saber, which he dispatched to open bottles of sparkling wine atop the bar for whoever asked. His wine list was over 80 pages and featured many of the same wines that were considered fine and rare. One thing I do love about Patrick Capiello that this article does mention is, you know, him in his black flag t-shirt and being able to just like wear jeans and be at these events. He did, I think, help um, the next class of sommeliers in which I think I was a part of um, because he was already very well established when mm -hmm. I was still kind of coming up in my San Francisco career for sure. And being able to see him do what he was doing presenting himself the way he presented himself and also being seen as an expert in his field was very inspiring to me to stop trying to play this. I live in California now. I'm going to be business casual from the Culinary Institute and try to change myself to be able to fit into this industry better. And it really freed me up. Seeing him was very freeing to be more of myself which when I saw him looking like him um, in his T-shirts, in his ripped jeans and drinking, you know, jam -A, I was like, oh, 
I could look like that and still be taken seriously. So I think a big part of this industry is when you are young and an insecure psalm is being worried that you're not being taken seriously based on how you look. And that is a huge part of everything um, in some way because you are, for most part, you are working with very fine things, with very fine people. Mm -hmm. You're you're basically the downstairs people working with the upstairs people. Agreed. The upstairs people. And how you present yourself is going to be a lot, was always going to be how you were uh, perceived and whether or not you were taken I think, yeah, that's a lot of actually what I was pulling from this article. And I, you know, Patrick's a friend and I think he's done a wonderful job with creating some real needle movement and material change in that conversation that's regularly had about accessibility. Because I agree with you, um, you know, watching Patrick do his work when I was young. Also, I was like, oh, I can I'm going to wear a T-shirt behind the bar tonight. I'm glad that you mentioned those things specifically about Patrick because the article kind of goes on a little bit of a water slide down towards the bottom that ends pretty uh, abruptly with suggesting that, you know, in my view or my interpretation of it, uh, perhaps that there's not a need for the academic rigor surrounding uh, sommelier culture and sommelier work. Perhaps that there isn't... um, a need for the decorum that I think is extremely important to the spirit of hospitality in general, frankly. So the author of the article goes on to mention that due to the, you know, described rote inequality and uh, I guess disproportionately distributed, you know, jobs and, and access in the, in, in the industry that there was kind of a flashpoint in 2020 wherein uh, COVID-19 shifted what a lot of sommeliers were thinking about, what their work meant. Uh, Patrick's quoted here saying that the pandemic shifted things in different directions. People who were in mentorship positions were forced to do something else and everyone got time to think about quality of life. Mm -hmm. This was something you loved, you kept doing it. The article then gets into some stuff about other events in 2020 that I I feel are kind of um, spoken about flippantly. This is... um, kind of something that's been happening in journalism in this space for several years now that, you know, if you basically I'll, I'll cap, I'll, I'll cap it this way. If you wake up thinking that you need to write an article about natural wine, you probably don't need to mention George Floyd. Uh, the two things are, uh, I think to be like wildly disparate and, uh, De Leon throughout this article, uh, I, I think is maybe grasping a little bit to try and, take this grievance and attach it to something that's a little bit more universal. And he continues that the aftermath of George Floyd's murder was another culprit uh, of, you know, this new Psalm world that he's describing after an infamous cheating scandal, a racist incident involving two teachers who insisted on being called master in a sexual harassment case with C- with the court of master sommeliers. It was clear that the industry needed a self-reflection <laughs> and still does parenthetically and a critical reset about who gets to be part of the wine world. This is the part that I really wanted to discuss with y'all because there is, at this point, kind of this pitch about doing away with, perhaps, the title of sommelier or, or maybe 
consciously removing some of its importance. With more distance and experience, I hasten to further myself from the crunchy cultural attachments that come with the word sommelier. I've never been particularly attached to sommelier, and while at one point in my career, I willed my hardest to embody what it meant to be a psalm. Currently, I call myself the wine director. Another sommelier calls herself the proprietor of her business. Capiello has eschewed the term to make wine. So go ahead, sommelier, wine person, wine enthusiast, wine DJ, whatever you want to call yourself. If wine's on the table, someone's got to open it. Might just be you. My initial response to this was about 15 responses on the Instagram that I had to constantly delete. You were deleting, typing, and deleting. Because my, like, annoyance. I mean, I did read the article. I'm not, like, one of these people that just, like, comments without reading an article. But I was very, very annoying. I was very, very annoyed. Um, And I probably deleted my response, like, 15 times until I had it um, less filled with grammatical errors and, uh, you know, being glib or flippant or whatever but um i am a sommelier 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 sam whatever you want to call it and that's because it's a title i earned and it worked i worked incredibly hard Mm -hmm. i did spend a lot of money and i had to elbow my way into spaces that was were not traditionally for me um and i'm still paying off debt for it fine but I'm really, really good at this. And for coming from a family that was not part of this world, that did not grow up with wine on the table, um, of really being like a first generation college graduate, like it was really important for me to go through all of the steps to pursue a passion that I thought I needed to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And academics and merit do mean something in the sommelier world. Yeah. There's not a lot of industries where merit still wins. And in the wine industry, merit is very, very important. I don't find these certifications to be paid to play because you have to earn them. Cheating yeah. scandal or not, I'm... I think, you know, I think every all of us sitting here can say we, we didn't come from backgrounds where wine was consumed every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the big thing here is this conversation about whether or not the word sommelier is important, I think is a bit ridiculous and honestly kind of just chips away at a level of professionalism that all of us have mm-hmm. been working really hard to establish for decades and a level yeah. of legitimacy towards our industry. Because I think any restaurant work for a very long time was considered, oh, you couldn't become ABC, mm-hmm. other thing, whatever, that requires a degree or requires yeah. a long time of study. I mean, I come from a family of doctors. I'm like a classic first generation indian kid from the east coast whose entire family works in the medical field and the day i graduated from college my mother said to me well if you want to go back and do pre-med we can talk about it and and i was like well no absolutely not i have a degree in the business of food yeah right and like 
I, I think that saying something like, oh, the word sommelier is poison or, you know, is, is not important or is antiquated, really, A, does a disservice to the industry because as an industry, the restaurant industry, the food industry, the hospitality industry, we need to be working to raise the level of professionalism because at the end of the day, that means that it raises wages and recognition for all of us and we can work towards becoming an industry that is legitimized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and having titles like sommelier are important. You know, like you want to call yourself a wine jockey or whatever. Okay. I don't want a bookkeeper filing my taxes. I want a CPA filing my taxes. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think that that's kind of the level of distinction here. Like, yeah, you might have the skills, but, but do you have the practice? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and when we talk about things like, oh, wearing a suit is uncomfortable on the floor if you're working as a sommelier, it's like, okay, but we also work in hospitality. Yeah, that's true. And the yeah. core of hospitality is making your guest feel comfortable. And if your guest is walking into a two, three star Michelin restaurant, yeah, yeah they do want to see somebody who is in a nice suit, who's of dressed up, and it looks nice. who can talk to them. Because you know what? I have worked in three Michelin star restaurants. Mm -hmm. I have worked in Michelin star restaurants. Like every guest, you treat them like they have saved up an entire yeah. year to be there. 100%. Yeah. And that level of professionalism, your guest deserves that. Yeah. And I, I, for sure. I, as a woman of color and a young woman of color, when I started working, certainly got my own fair share of nonsense from guests, from certain guests. But I, I always took such pride in being able to say, I'm the sommelier. Mm -hmm. I can assist you. That's the title I earned. And it's a practice, you know, like yeah. it is a, just because you completed a course doesn't mean you're a sommelier. A sommelier is a working title. You take inventory, you clean up bottles, you do seller work, all of that stuff. That is being a sommelier. It's the practice of the work of maintaining a seller, no. serving a guest. And knowing what you're selling yeah. and being educated, being able yeah. to, we answer questions this. be able to actually help uh i think the difference between a wine gal or a wine jockey and a sommelier is um i feel like a wine jockey is gonna pour stuff that they like that's there a yeah. sommelier is gonna pour what you want yes and it's gonna listen to you the guest and it's going to find out what you are into and bring that to the next level and take pride yeah in the fact that they are bringing the guests the experience they want yeah, a sommelier is to make I, everything better. I'm super duper inclined to agree because I think that there is this kind of flattening and um, unification of all labor that's happening right now where people, um, I, I mean, I, I think that there's a maybe like a force at work that is flattening people's expertise and not to uh, get all tinfoil hat, but the this type of, uh, eschewing of, you know, very hard work and dedication and academic rigor is v super on ominous to me. It's it's the same to me as when, like, conservative reactionaries get on Substack and start being like, stop sending your children to college. They're being indoctrinated. Like, it's, it's like, like learning is important. Learning is important. It's learning extremely important. important. I have children, right? And, you know, children are... They're sneaky. They're always trying to get you to do something without them having to do any work. My daughter's a proficient reader. She'll run up and be like, Dad, will you spell this word for me? No. You know how to spell it. Yeah. Um, practice. 
practice. Do it again. Do it 25 times. Yeah. I know that you know. But, you know, to your point about, you know, the different levels of expertise and, and why they're important, like, I've never, like, nobody's like, oh, my car broke down. I need to take it to the vibe curator. <laughs> like, what the fuck? You yeah, know? I want a good mechanic. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm taking it yeah, to the I don't mechanic. want someone. I don't want someone that, like, works on their car for fun while they're doing four other things and trying to launch a podcast. Like, I want. Yeah, I mean, that guy's probably a good hang. but yeah, like, exactly. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, but you don't want your dealer to hang out too long. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you want someone that is actually professional. If I, you know, I do feel very Ron Swanson and Parks and Rec when he like goes into like a Home Depot and mm -hmm. it's like, can I ask you for something? I'm like, I know more than you like walking away. Right. But like, I think part of that's just because I've done nothing but study wine. And I really try not to be annoying about it. And I really try not to shut people out. In fact, I want to bring people into it. So many mm -hmm. folks are like against against certifications and things now. And it's like, why are you against certifications? Because there were a bunch of fuck ups. Mm -hmm. And because an organization didn't like fix everything as fast as they should have. Yeah, that was fucking annoying. I know a lot of those people that were cut out of a certain organization. I know a lot of people that weren't cut out of that certain organization that should have been. And then everyone's like, oh, you know what? We're going to get out. I'm going to stop going to the court of master sommeliers. I'm going to start taking my W set. As if a organization based in London isn't just full of old white guys and full of old bullshit as well. Part of why I found this article to be strangely mm -hmm. timed, <clears throat> because it's not a new conversation. No. None of the points brought up are like brand new. In fact, there's a timeline on the article and it goes back several several years but it's at the end of the day what you're trying to say is let's delegitimize the only working term mm -hmm. we really have that is recognizable universally that allows people to kind of understand what you do yeah and i think that's yeah. really the heart of that conversation and to me i'm really proud uh, to I be agree. known as a sommelier and i think it's aggravating and it's insulting when somebody tells me this is an outdated word or mm -hmm. a word that shouldn't be used because it's like well what's your big game here like yeah. do you want to work in an industry it's that, already gender neutral do you want to work in an industry <laughs> like, that is legitimized yeah. and like people can understand or do you just want to keep working in this sort of like hippie lifestyle yeah i mean it, you're not like Okay, I understand, like, maybe you're not, you don't like the term sommelier because you're not one. A chef is a chef, right? Like, sometimes why? a chef is a cook, and you got to be okay saying you're a fucking cook. You don't have to be a chef. Sometimes you're a cook. Okay? Some cooks are great chefs. if you're chefs. a cook, be proud of being a cook. Don't say you're a chef, and don't be mad at a chef because a chef is a chef, and you're just a cook. Yeah. Fucking be happy that you're a cook. Find find some find some love in your life of being a cook. Call yourself a cook, but don't get mad at Chef for not be for calling himself Chef. Yeah, Chef earned that. Title. I do I do think that that's a, that's a great uh, door to open because um, all of my old chefs that I've worked with, you know, they're Chef to me. The Chef is the first word in their contact on my phone when we talk and we're in a professional environment. Like I'm saying Chef because that I, I mean that's. You know, we we did brigade at my old restaurants. Yeah. We we do those rules, and um, 
And I like it. I like making sure that that person knows that I'm deferring to them where they stand. So that, and I'm offering that so that they do the same to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and we work in, yeah, when there's mutual respect in your workplace, that shit is not, doesn't matter to you. Like, that's the chef. Yeah, chef, whatever. It's not, it, you know, I know it's a meme now, um, but it's a. But chef gets used towards sommeliers too, between sommeliers yes. who are working together and that really, really, really appreciate and Quite. respect each other. Yeah. I mean, and it's the literal definition. I mean, it's like you're in charge. Yeah, you're the chief, exactly. <laughs> like, you know. Exactly. So you mentioned Simi earlier, you know, getting flack as, you know, a young woman of color table side and i i wanted to circle back to that because you mentioned something that i i applaud and i also have experienced quite a lot myself you know when you say you're getting this pushback and and getting a little bit of shit from people uh i've been in so many scenarios wherein that's bothered me quite a lot but after some time it became this you know i knew that this is my house and they're in here looking for my stuff. So, you know, as offended and pissed off and, you know, maybe a, how this might change, you know, my perception about like that table, that person, what have you. Um, how did you, you know, coming up as a young sommelier and, and specifically from your starting point, as you know, you mentioned not having a lot of wine knowledge or, or next to none when you got into the field. What did that feel like as you climbed the ladder and what did each one of those stopping points and those accomplishments and feel like and what was your perspective when you realized that, you know, I'm I'm in charge. This is me. This is this is my shit. I mean, certainly like when I started working in restaurants, I was a little shit. Um, yeah. I mean, I really I didn't know anything about alcohol at that point. I was 21. I had just graduated college, but for whatever reason I was put in charge of wine buying and that's eventually led me to the Culinary Institute and and to this program and becoming a sommelier and then after that I went back to New York and was working through Michelin and you know that was definitely like traditional brigade system learning levels of respect really just like being in the trenches and getting shat on all day long Um, but when I came back out to California I worked at a really great Michelin star restaurant in Silicon Valley and I got a lot of experience and that Mm -hmm. was really where I encountered the highest amount of this sort of like, Oh, bring me the sommelier and be like, well, I am the sommelier. Yeah. That's it's crazy. uh, (laughs) You know, definitely it was incredibly frustrating. Um, But I think over time, it's really about like a confidence of the self. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a matter of like, can you do the job? Mm Mm-hmm. And and and, then I, and maybe it's a little bit of an old school mentality, right? Like, you know, being raised by first generation immigrants is sort of like, look, just put your head down, get the job done. And like, yeah. that's kind of like political, what makes us a model minority, whatever. It's like, shut up and do the job. But I, I think in restaurants particularly, that mentality is important. Yeah. Especially in Michelin star restaurants. It's like, if you're the one crying in a corner, you're not going to get a promotion. <laughs> If you're the one yeah. who's like working 16 hours a day and like you're there till three o'clock in the morning doing the cellar work, yeah, 
that's a sommelier and i and i don't and i obviously like after the pandemic everyone is very conscious mm -hmm. of work-life balance and i'm on that train absolutely and i don't think that that culture exists in very many places anymore because the demand is just not there in the same way i think that the level of dining has become much more casual again yeah. where like the fine dining sommelier is certainly a a dying breed in the sense that it's not as in demand um but that feeling of, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing. It was really more about myself. Yeah. Yes. Because at the end of the day, nobody's going nobody's gonna to look at you as a 25-year-old, you know, brown woman and be like, yeah, she's, she knows what she's doing. She's, mm -hmm. She can run this 250-page wine list or like, you know, understand that. Like, no, I mean, the amount of every night I would get told, hey, can you bring me the sommelier? And be like, well, I'm the sommelier. Mm -hmm. The wording is always funny. It's... Is there anyone here who could tell me something about this bottle of wine? Yeah. I'm like, oh. Me. Oh, look at me. I'm wearing a suit. Mm. Yeah. I got a dry clean just for you. There's a little pin on it, too. This is one of the best Cabernet Francs I've had in a while. Oh. It is good. We did two Cap Francs tonight. We blind tasted this. Um, oh, you did? You brought it in blind. We brought it in blind. It is a Becky Wasserman selection, which helps because, you know, RIP to a real one. Right. It's probably the only time we're going to be able to blind taste any vintage of this wine before it blows up. Yeah, this is the first vintage of this wine. <laughs> the first, like, release. Um, this is Claude Durandry, and I'm sure I'm murdering that. Pronunciation. I don't speak any French, but that's my guess at the Etienne Baudet or Baudet, Harold, maybe. This guy's got provenance. So this is a 100% Cabernet Franc, um, 2020 vintage. Uh, it is from Samur. So, you know, the heart of where all the good stuff happens. We got Clouvergeard, um, all the other big dudes. Let's just start off by saying that Romain Guiberto is his stepfather. There we go. That's what I was like. Oh, I didn't I was know like, that. I knew there was that relationship. And huh. he was gifted this vineyard as a wedding present. Nepo baby. Hashtag yes, Nepo baby. This is Nepo baby wine. <laughs> but let's just say something. All wine in Burgundy, the Loire Valley, Champagne, etc. Like, if we want to make fun of Nepo babies, we cannot drink French wine. Yeah, because, I was like, going to say. The best of the best in Burgundy. Nepotism. Yeah. Comes from the great... Napoleon. We had a hat today, sold it all. Joaquin Phoenix in theaters by Apple TV very soon. Well, I mean, let's talk about nepotism and Napoleon. Um, the Napoleonic hats. Code, right? Napoleonic Code um, was that your estate, when you died, had to be split separately amongst your children, right? That's why Burgundy's all fucked up. Uh, the, only, the only area that didn't really affect that didn't really affect for some reason is Bordeaux. Seems that's like. right. Napoleon was the first Maoist. <laughs> um, you love Maoists. You know Napoleon was great Mao. until he declared himself emperor. <laughs> what? Okay, quick, uh, quick quiz though. Where was Napoleon born? In Corsica. Ah, Did the OG short king. Yeah. The OG short. King. Yes. Um, Shout out. But this is why we hire sommeliers because they know where Napoleon was born, and obviously that's important. Speaking of brain real estate, Napoleon. I'm, I think about that dude a lot. That's true. Everybody we should have let him kill Roman all Empire. the other gentry.
Do you know how frequently my girlfriend makes fun of me for thinking about the Roman Empire every day? The Roman Empire is something we <laughs> think about day. all the day, all the time. And when those memes were going around, I was like, I do think about the Roman Empire every day. And it's it, it's not because I watched 300 or whatever. It's because uh, literally wine yeah. is moved by the Gauls or by, by the Romans as they like enter Gaul. Fun, fun story. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to use the internet, so I never know when a meme is happening. And Damn, that's legitimately cool. driving home from Costco a few weeks ago, my girlfriend goes, hey, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And I just thought it was legit. She got question. you with that organically? Oh, yeah, nice. completely. I was Your like, I don't know. So I was like at least once a day and she died <laughs> and I couldn't understand why. And it took a full three blocks before she stopped laughing and was like, you know, mm -hmm. this is a meme. And I said, you know I don't understand the internet. You don't have a memes. <laughs> That's why you're so cool and balanced, dude. She I, came here and she was like, what's this Roman Empire thing? So I just had to like show her memes so on TikTok. Cara had to explain to me why she laughed for so long. And I was That's like, really oh, funny. okay, I get it. And yeah. you know what? I still stand by my point that internet is a place of evil. Yeah. It's bad. You should get yeah. rid of it. It's bad, folks. <laughs> we don't need it. And also, you know, it's it's started to permeate yeah. real life play in way sandbox. too much. Yeah. Oh, well, if you like sandboxes, you should get on sandbox AI. gaming. <laughs> Is it on the internet? Yeah. No, no can do. No can yeah, do. Yeah. I'm a puzzle kind of lady, You'll though. If anybody I wants to send me a gift, I love puzzles. Um, a gif? No, like a like a puzzle. Oh, a gift. Yeah, a gift. Oh, she was about to pounce on you. She was so ready to correct you. Yeah, no, a gift. <laughs> it's Jeff. I don't care. Had your ass. It's Jeff. I have, I have a question about this article. So, like, my question is, after listening to you guys talk about this, and I read the article as well, but I'm wondering, like, I don't think the author was saying sommeliers, you should be called a sommelier if you don't have the training. Right. I'm questioning, and I want to know your guys' perspective on, do you think there's a... There's an issue. There's an issue with the word sommelier because it's inaccessible to like, um, pe like the people who maybe aren't necessarily, um, yeah, or like it's not as accessible to people who maybe want to drink wine. Like you, you hear the word sommelier and there's a connotation, and then some people are like, oh, this isn't for me. And it keeps mm. specific classes and structures in place because people don't believe that wine is for them because it's only for sommeliers, which is this fancy French word that people don't relate to. Sure. Good. I like that. Thank you, Chris. That's a great question. And I had some meditations on exactly that okay. this morning. Um, I made notes. <laughs> Please. But the word accessibility is so important to the entire conversation around sommeliers because as sommeliers we are hospitalitarians our entire job is to make everybody feel comfortable in the way that we can so whether that means um you know i'm serving you a 700 dollar bottle of syrah or an 85 dollar bottle of syrah from the rhone valley or a $40 bottle. Or a $40 bottle. I mean, a restaurant, retail, whatever it is. That bottle should have the best intentions behind it. Because as sommeliers, our intent is 
to give you a glimpse of the best that that region might have. At least that's my intention. I can't speak for others always. My intention is to bring a taste of the classics to everybody in the best way we can. That's part of the reason why we opened to can. And so, and it's also really a major reason why we blind taste everything. And it's for that pure thing of how do we provide value? We are classically trained sommeliers, so we know what the good stuff should taste like because we have spent our hours working at the best restaurants in the country. And that's a sacrifice we made personally to advance our own careers. But now we've taken that experience and brought it to this retail environment where we still believe that anybody, including yourself, Sarah, who doesn't have really much wine knowledge at all, should be able to say, hey, I want a really good bottle of Northern Road Syrah. I have no idea what that means. I read about it, mm -hmm. but I don't want to spend more than $60. Great. Here are some options for you from producers in that area, yeah. anywhere from $38 going upwards. And that is something that Cara and I do with a lot of intention. And that is the heart of being a sommelier, right? Is how do we make all of this accessible? Because we have worked at the places that are the most inaccessible. We've worked at those places where it's like every single night you're waiting on some billionaire or sommelier, like, or I'm sorry, or some celebrity. Like I have done that. I did that for years. So I know what those people drink and I know how much they pay for it. And I know it's not impossible for the everyday person to drink that way. Yeah, it's like, you know, with pins and suits and signifiers, it's easy to make fun of that stuff, I think, when you're just being a a fucking hipster about stuff or, you know. But I'll say that in my work now, wherein I'm control in control of, like, what I'm wearing, where I am, and what I'm doing, like, it's, it's significantly, like, less offensive if someone's like, hey, so, like, what's up with this? Do you know? Is there someone who knows? Because yeah. it's like if I was wearing a suit and a pin but and someone asked me that question. This is, like, such an important <laughs> conversation, right? Because it's instead of just, like, saying, hey, we're going to get rid of the word somewhere and throw out the window, I think Cara and I, what we really aim to do when we opened a camp was, like, take the word back. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And, like... It's like, okay, look, the sommelier doesn't need to be somebody running around in a sweaty, stinky suit like that's covered in dust from opening boxes. It can be somebody who is literally wearing whatever the fuck they want. But when I talk to you, you're going to be like, holy shit, yeah. you know a lot about wine. And like every, I can tell that every bottle on this wall or on this list has a significance and a meaning. Yeah. And you know what? The people who are working here can tell you that too. That's the definition of a sommelier. It's like, okay, I'm cooking this for dinner tonight. What is the best thing that I should drink with it? And whether it's a $18 bottle or it's a $180 bottle, I'm going to give you my educated opinion and you can make the decision with the yeah. facts I presented. And yeah. I mean, honestly, like, look, I, I, whenever I travel outside of San Francisco, I always visit wine shops. Yeah. And it is shocking to me how many wine shops are being opened by folks who, when you look at the walls, you're like, why are these bottles here in this climate or in, in this room that has no air conditioning, but these wines have no wine sulfur on them? Around like, where like, I feel like if I walk in, some Zoomer is going to walk up to me and be like, what's your body count? Yeah. Let me tell you, there are a lot of places hey, like, that Rate have... this wine one out of 10. Hey, where do you live? Can I take a tour of your apartment? It's just like, what the fuck? There's is a lot of the vibe sucks. Places that have opened... <laughs> like, 
like this whole thing of you know, you know, maybe we don't want to call each other sommeliers anymore. And sometimes I think, no, and fuck I, you, I'm a sommelier. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, well, fuck you, I'm a sommelier. And it's not. I'm not trying to be elitist, and I'm not trying to be gatekeeping. I feel like this article is kind of being very gatekeeping. You're not. Ironic. It's not cool if you're still a sommelier. Blah blah blah. You're too buttoned up. You're too. You're you're you're. It almost feels like like if you're a sommelier, you are um, you are you are okay with the white cis heteronormativity mm-hmm. of the industry and it's like everything that we're doing within the sommelier community is to bring people in i want people to get a wine education because when they don't you can tell on the wine lists mm-hmm. you can tell at the wine shops you can tell at the little restaurants where they don't want to hire an actual sommelier and no they communication just hired a host that style knows some wine. No communication between each skew. Yeah. Things and it's that like, are extremely popular. No, and, and often 86 because they're popular. And we hear, we hear <laughs> people come in here and yeah. guests come to Decant SF and they are surprised by the caliber of wine that we have because they are not used to seeing that. Four or five people a, a day. Oh, wow. This election's place. crazy. I tell people all the time, I say, you know, lighter to fuller. The restaurant's inventory will read quite a lot like a wine list at a very good restaurant um, because that's the training of the people who established the business. I always say you shouldn't have to have white tablecloths and a $200 per person like tasting menu Mm -hmm. to be able to have access to great wine. That's how I see it. I see us as a Michelin star uh, restaurant wine list that has your bases covered for classics and we have fun. And you know what we don't have? Fucking flawed bullshit that only people who don't know good wine think is delicious. Yeah. And we have people coming back in here so happy that they can get a real good bottle of wine that isn't going to be overwrought with VA. And let me just tell you something right now. It's volatile acidity. VA, VA, okay, volatile acidity. Let's stop pretending that outside of Amarone and maybe Barolo, that this is a part of terroir and winemaking. And Candy, oh yeah. Outside of Italy, that this is a part of terroir because I don't care. Like, yes, the climate is warming, that is not an excuse for volatile acidity to be in every fucking wine. Understand science. That I mean, the climate change, quote unquote, is the COVID-19 of fucking like wine writing. People will be like, oh, this is happening because of climate change. Like the way that like anything that you read right now is like, well, this is bad and there's nothing we can do about it. But remember, it's because of the pandemic. Sorry. <laughs> like it's it's annoying. Simi, thank you so much for your commentary, both on the wines and on the article, I um, was, you know, I'm, I'm grateful, obviously, always to hear, you know, experiences from talented and, and hardworking sommeliers. I think that that is um, one thing that, you know, I'm, I'm in this gray area, like membrane area with all these natty kids um, with, I think, whom... I identify because of my uh, my interests and my age, but um, I am a I am a purist about wine. Um, 
the same way that I am about like good literature or like a good record. You know what I mean? Um, that they should cleave closest to um, the form if they are going to be considered art, right? Kara, um, you know, I had um, I had a really great mentor, and it's very lucky that you can have mentors. I had a really great mentor who um, got canceled. I got I had a really great mentor nice. who said to me once when um, I was under his tutelage at the Culinary Institute of America, because I was also a hipster, one mm -hmm. kid, believe it or not, um, just maybe a generation or a decade before I just thought you were a stoner wine kid. Well, is that too? But, you know, I, you know, I, not to play like I was into it before it was cool, but, you know, I was drinking Cornelis and Mingebel and like Canobium and Guiberto and stuff like back when I was a fucking baby song. In 20 Those are total 2014 ass wines to me. Yeah, if if I'm being honest, well, which is fun, probably because, maybe like, earlier for but you. But I was drinking them like oh nine, yeah, yeah, ten, like in my I think before I came to California, right? Yeah, current release Moonjabel and shit was like eleven, twelve when I was like, oh, this is nice. I didn't think that would still be a problem when I moved out here ten years right. later. And so, like, the interesting thing is, like, and Mind Clay and all these other producers back mm -hmm. in the day, and um, when I came out here, I remember actually at the CIA we were doing a chapter. on I think we were doing a focus on wines of like Eastern Europe and we were in Georgia and I remember we had a blind flight because every day we just did blind flights in the morning. It was like 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. We were just blind tasting wine and doing theory tests all day long. Like we're talking school, like the Culinary Institute of America is no joke. It was intense. Um, and like the fact that she knew nothing, that she didn't know anything about wine and then she graduated the way she did as a certified that is sommelier. A total if you're is doing that stuff with her, insane yeah. to me because I, like that it was like a master's program. It yeah. is now a master's program in wine. So like not a not a master's sommelier program. Sometimes I'm smart. Oh my god! Well, that's the whole reason why I wanted her to open the business with me because I was like no, I mean, oh, that the is, smartest person I know. I'm an that's idiot crazy savant. impressive. So we were doing this like Eastern European chapter, and I remember they poured out these wines that were like little amber colored, little weird, whatever. And I remember this and, and them saying like, uh, the proctors being like, who thinks these wines are flawed? And like most of the room raised their hands. And I didn't. And they're like, who thinks these wines are intentional? And like, I raised my hand and I was like, you know, honestly, I think this is probably like a Raxatelli or whatever you, however you pronounce it from like Crescent Georgia. Wines, different and they were like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. But it's because I was exposed to it because I worked in Chicago and we were little hipster wine kids and we were trying so I had like my intro psalm at the time and like we were just really trying to know everything and it was so much easier to drink the natural wines which we didn't even call that that no. back then we called it like farmer fizz or funky or like farmer wine I don't even remember what we called it Can't that term natural wine is not what we used but um it was oh, well obviously we used the term minimal intervention or non-intervention. We use those terms. And that was just like a part of what I grew up on. And that was sort of like the basis of what I did. And I had my first wine buying job before I even went to the CIA. I had a green yeah. little baby. Like, um, like I get it. I wasn't a sommelier. I was a wine steward. Maybe I was a wine jockey. You know what I mean? Like back then, 25 years old, 26 years old, 
not really having a lot of education under my, ba- under my belt, really liking kind of the funky stuff. So it was easier to understand than hitting the books. Yes. Then I went to the CIA and I was like, no, I got to get serious about this shit. So I got myself an education. And I remember my mentor, my proctor, um, pulled me aside and he was like, name three producers from the Jura. And I was like, bam, bam, bam. Okay, name three producers from the Northern Room. And I was like, Gigal. And I couldn't think of any other ones. And one of the really great things he said to me, he was like, you have a really great wine foundation, but I need you to study the classics. And that really rang hard and true for me because I was always the type of person who was like, I didn't, I didn't care about Mark Twain. I read William Burroughs. Right. Right. I liked the beat poets. I didn't like the classic American literature because I thought that was ingrained in the status quo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was a little bit more rebellious than that. And I feel like with wine, I went the same way in the beginning. But then I started tasting the classics and understanding the classics and the classics are expensive. The classics are elite. The classics are hard to get your hands on, but there's a reason why they are the classics because they are the vertebrae to the rest of the body of wine. That's what everything else is really stemming off of for sure. And so it's like, Yes, I knew that this Georgian Raxatelli was not a flawed wine, and this was intentionally made this way because I had tasted a bunch of them. But I didn't know anything about GMA. I didn't know anything about Alamond. I didn't know anything at all about the champagne producers like Krug and Ruinart that led the way to everything else that we are at now. So it's like you need to study the classics at least to get an understanding. And if you're afraid of the classics, you're afraid of the barrier entry, then you are never going to call yourself a sommelier because you're not even going to try to read Shakespeare. You're not going to try to read Twain. I think um, sommelier is a career, wine viber is a job. And I think that's a big difference. And it really depends also on your audience, right? I'm a sommelier, I'm educated. I know that... um, if I, you know, if all things fell apart here, I, as in a quartermaster sommelier's advanced sommelier, could go out with my experience and my level of education and get a really great job. You could slay on Indeed. At a like, high-end sure. place or a high-end buying go. job. I go to Las Vegas, run a fucking program because mm-hmm. I have that experience, et cetera, et cetera. And they know from that, that yeah. me having passed that exam that I have X amount of proficiency and knowledge and you worked for it and you didn't yeah. stop till you had it and, and that's it's, important you know it's like a you know you take your master you know if you pass your master masters of wine or your master sommelier exam it's like it's it's our version of a master's degree in that sense right so it's like and it's not master as in like I am the master of this group of people. It's master as in I have mastered this. Mastery. A yeah. mastery of a subject. No. I think all and the anybody time- who wanted to be called master, by the way, like Cringe. master fucking bait that shit out the door. That is disgusting. It's very weird. Um, I remember people, I remember when I was a baby son and people like calling people fucking masters and I was like, you're fucking gross. Like calling them master. Like 
Like, yeah, that's cringe. Yeah. That's very... You might uh, as well just, like, wear a jersey with their fucking name that's on very, the back. That's very state school Girl. fraternity. Yeah. And that's, like, that's the thing is, like, that's not what it really is. And people yeah. who really, really, really care about this industry care about it moving forward and care about it moving together and care about it, care about bringing more people in so that we don't just have a bunch of, like, fucking wine vibers that are just pouring natty wine to club kids. Yeah. Great. That's amazing. I think those it's great people that are doing. not going to those those guests yeah. are getting them into wine. Fucking fantastic. But there's a lot of people in our generation that are becoming sober. And I wonder if there's not a correlation to all the fucking horrible wine that they've been getting served. <laughs> nice. yeah. Because yeah. I don't know generation. I don't know anybody who's drinking GMA no. that wants to go sober for fun. No. Like, it's, you're drinking shitty stuff. You're going to take time to think, is this worth the calories? I don't feel that great. Right? No. I don't feel that great. Mm, I thought drinking natural wine wouldn't give me a headache. That's not the fucking reality of things. So be a wine viber all you want, but that's not a fucking career. I'm sorry. Being a professional sommelier, which comes from which comes from the very humble jobs of being a butler and or being somebody who worked service for a family. Our, this industry comes from something old as service. time. It comes from service. It comes from service of people. It comes from taking care of people who are wayward travelers and spending time in your inn. They're coming from a time before restaurants, coming from a time when only the aristocracy could hire staff. Yes. And then they only hired people who then could, they would pay for them to become experts in wine and we like, run their households. Absolutely. That's where we're from. We're workers. Yeah, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if the pre-restaurant West was in recent enough memory. Yeah. Um, yeah. We wouldn't be having this conversation if. Our job um, is pre-Escoffier. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about all the time because um, I mean, I think I mentioned this car, to Cara earlier. You know, there's adages and catchphrases people like to say about different little wine trivia. You know, well, you know, they use Madeira to toast the Declaration of Independence. And I'm always like, well, who do you think was pouring it? Slaves. Like, you know, what I mean? it's like there's like if you want to de, you're trying to like, I, again, decolonizing, decolonizing a a Western-based global market force is, um, it's a goose chase. We live in these realities each and every day. All of our identities are fixed. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that like allowing that to extend to wine, even though it is mystifying, magical, seductive, and curious is fair. You know, at the end of the day, we need to be talking about this from, I think a clear-eyed and 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 like high clarity labor perspective, rather than applying a bunch of um, postmodern identity politics to it. I don't think it's fair to people who might want to jump in, you know, and to have it be constantly oh, yeah. advertised to you that oh it'll be too hard for you because of who you are. I, Everyone you know, sucks. It's, like, it's gonna suck. It's gonna be that, terrible. Right? Like I mean, like, so, yeah. I don't know, Parker. You, I feel like you and I probably had some 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 sort of parallel experiences in the wine world. Of course, as far as people assuming that we don't. Yeah. Shit Why would I let those people stop me from doing anything? Exactly. Like I'm not gonna go home and worry about. Prove it with your palate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, I think that like, 
you know, a conversation that probably found its way into print after a dinner party conversation over mm-hmm. a bunch of like old wine. Um, I don't no, know. It but. very much reads like a heart to heart. It does feel like a hard heart. It does. It feels. I just. I just have to say, it's like, not everything. Not every live journal needs to be Mm -hmm. um, a medium piece. Not every live journal needs to be um, a like restaurant tours uh, Instagram post. Like, we can just uh, realize that we have some hardships and elbow our way through them and try to push really hard we're better together we're better when we're working together that's right and just get educated educate yourself on wine don't mm-hmm. get mad because someone's a chef and you're a cook and if you're a Be hipster a out there think about how much better you're, you'll feel when you're being a dogmatic asshole and you're actually right about everything you're saying <laughs> let's go he's right <laughs> come on it feels good Feels great. It feels really right. It feels really great. Also, to prove people wrong. Dismissing people on valid grounds is it hits different. Hang out more in California, all you New Yorkers. Like I know that you had some time, but come on back. Things are changing. Things are fun. This has been another episode (laughs) of the Slanted and Decanted podcast. Woof. Thank you, Simi. Thank you for joining us. Simi Graywall, not like Siri on on Apple says. Simaran gruel. Thank you. Simaran. I'm just going to tell it's you. Very easy, Californians. Simi, like Jimmy. Yes, not it's not. Simi, it's not Simi. Like Valley. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Super easy. Don't complicate it. And it's cara, like a car. Oh. Or face. And Espanol. And my name's Parker, like Parker. Parker Posey, or Robert Parker, or Charlie Parker. The best of the Parkers. Or Parker from Alien. Great movie. Follow us on Instagram at Slanted in the Candid Pod. There you can find a link tree for all of the links to our TikTok, Threads, Patreon account. And you will later find bonus content, including newsletters, bonus episodes. Um, Outtakes of shit we about can't stuff. put on YouTube. Cara harassing me about joining Texom. Um, <laughs> there will be a bunch of stuff going on later. And in the future, please... Like, share, subscribe. That's youtube.com slash slanted and decanted pod. And Patreon. See you later. Bye. Good night. <laughs>